Um, this morning we're in Proverbs 30. We're getting close to the end of Proverbs. We're going to spend three more weeks. We're going to do two topical studies, and then obviously we have to cover Proverbs 31. And so we'll do that for a few more weeks, and then uh, I will kick us off into Ecclesiastes uh, at the end of May, okay? So uh, if you'll turn to Proverbs 30, you've got some outlines on your table if you want to use those. Um, but let me pray for us, and then we will study the Word together. God, we're very thankful for your grace and love to us. We're thankful for Christ, who is the, the one who you sent into the world to save us, who are your people. We're thankful for the time we get to study your word together this morning. Thank you for uh, the, the depth of it and the unknowableness of it, but also the clarity of it that you have been kind to reveal to us. Pray that it would be helpful to us as we study this morning. We pray all this in your name. Amen. 1887 was the year uh, that one of the most iconic and memorable literary heroes was born because in 1887, a young author had his first novel published called A Study in Scarlet. If you know anything about the game, then you will know that A Study in Scarlet is the first novel with the protagonist, that one detective, Sherlock Holmes. And so... Uh, it took off after that, many different short stories and novels coming from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's pen. But Sherlock Holmes was immediately a fascinating protagonist because it seemed that he had more than his fair share of quirks and, and flaws, and yet he had one skill, one, one superpower, if you will, that uh, was the turn the tide in all the cases that he took, right? And it was his keen power of observation. And so uh, we might think that he is the one that to be compared to of, of being able to observe situations and pull out the truth even when it wasn't meant to be revealed. And yet we find in Proverbs 30 that Sherlock has competition in a man named Agur. Now, Ager is, we don't know anything about him except that he compiled and wrote Proverbs 30, this list of Proverbs that were included in Solomon's book of Proverbs. Now, while Sherlock is using his powers of observation to solve crimes and mysteries, Ager uses his power of observation to teach us the importance of true humility before an almighty God. And so, that will bring us to our theme this morning, and that is... Carefully considering God and his providence can teach us much about humility. Carefully considering God and his, his providence, that is how he works in the world and in our lives, can teach us much about humility. Now, part of me wishes that I got about 10 weeks to teach through Proverbs 30 because it is a fascinating chapter, and I, I admit it to Aaron, I don't think I know half of what is here by the time I'm teaching it this morning, but that's also why I'm thankful that I'm teaching it once so that you don't realize how much I don't know about this chapter, okay? It is a very, very interesting chapter. Let's read it together. If you've got your Bibles... Let's read Proverbs 30 and notice how considering God and his providence in our lives teaches us much about humility. Proverbs 30, verse 1. The words of Agur, the son of Jaca, the oracle, the man declares to Ithiel, Ithiel, and Ukul, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. 
Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. Two things I asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full, and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Do not slander a slave to his master, or he will curse you and you will be found guilty. There is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. There is a kind, oh, how lofty are his eyes, and his eyelids are raised in arrogance. There is a kind of man whose teeth are like swords and his jaw teeth like knives to devour the afflicted from the earth and the needy from among men. The leech has two daughters. Give, give. There are three things that will not be satisfied, four that will not say enough. Sheol and the barren womb, earth that is never satisfied with water, and fire that never says enough. The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out, and the young eagles will eat it. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea. In the way of a man with a maid. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Under three things the earth quakes, and under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is satisfied with food. Under an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. Four things are small on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are not a strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. The Shephanim are not mighty people, yet they make their houses in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. The lizard you may grasp with the hands, yet it is in king's palaces. There are three things which are stately in their march, even four which are stately when they walk. The lion, which is mighty among beasts and does not retreat before any. The strutting rooster, the male goat also, and a king when his army is with him. If you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have plotted evil, put your hand on your mouth, for the churning of milk produces butter, and pressing the nose brings forth blood, so the churning of anger produces strife. Proverbs chapter 30. I think what we'll see here and break down into two sections. The first section will be verses 1 to 10. The second section, 11 through the end of the chapter. And the first section, and we'll see between these two, two avenues for learning humility. The first one that we see in the first 10 verses is that we can learn humility by considering how God relates to us. We can learn humility by considering how God relates to us. Verse 1 talks about Agur, the son of Jaka. 
the oracle. We don't know anything about this man. We don't know anything about his father. This is the only time they're mentioned. But it says he is an oracle, or this is the oracle. That is, it's the production of a prophet, or what used to be called a seer. This is wisdom that is coming in divine revelation from God. And it says that he is a man who declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukul. Now, uh, some scholars have taken this to be the translation of their names. You know, almost every name in Scripture has a meaning behind it. And so some of your, your Bibles might say something like, instead of Ithio, Ithio, and Ukul, that he says something like, I am weary, O my God. And it could be that, but it seems more likely because, again, we don't know anything about these men, that these are the men he is talking to. He is saying these, these proverbs to these men, Ethiel and Ukul. Apparently, these two younger men have come to this older man. He talks about dying soon. Then they come to him for wisdom. What can you teach us, O great Agur, that we can learn from you? The first thing that we learn about the way that God relates to us, Agur is going to comment on the wisdom of God. And specifically notice that he's commenting on these things about God in contrast to us or in relation to us. So in verse 2, he says, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Indeed, I am more stupid. I, I am brutish. I am senseless. I, I am like a beast of the field. I'm not even like a man. I don't have the understanding, the normal understanding of a human. Psalm 73:22 says, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. That's what he's trying to convey. So these men come to him and they say, tell us all your wisdom. And he says, I don't think you understand. I, I have no wisdom. I'm more stupid than any man. Verse 3, neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. I, I haven't been taught. I haven't been instructed. I haven't been divinely given this amazing amount of knowledge. Considering that we're in Proverbs chapter 30, who do we, what do we know about the man who wrote Proverbs chapter 1 to 29? Solomon, right? The one who was divinely granted unique amount of wisdom so that he could lead his people well. Now, there's a quote here from the New American Commentary. <laughs> his self-confessed lack of wisdom, this Agur fellow, should not be taken too literally or else this section shouldn't be in Proverbs nor should it be regarded as bleak epistemological pessimism. Rather, it's an acknowledgement of the limits of human understanding and a humble confession that only God is truly wise. That's the idea. Agur comes and he says, you think that I'm going to submit a chapter for a book with Solomon? Are you crazy? Solomon is the one who speaks with authority and wisdom. Why? Because God gave it to him. And you want me to write a chapter here? No, thank you. I am more stupid than any man. I, I wasn't given wisdom like Solomon was given. But rather, we'll find out, because of its inclusion here in the canon and because of the amazing wisdom that's found here, that Agur was exactly who God wanted to write these Proverbs. Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You see, Ukul, or, sorry, Agur calls him, he refers to God as my God. He is a believer in the one true God, and this is therefore the wisdom of God through him. So we see, Agur considers the wisdom of God as so much higher than what he has. And then in verse 4, we see him talk about the power of God. 
Verse 4, who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? You're hearing reflections of passages like the end of Job, right? How big is this God that we are talking about? Of course he has wisdom. Of course he is so far beyond us. Who is the one who can even go to heaven where he is? Who, who gathers up the wind and wraps the water? Job 26, 8, he wraps up the water in his clouds and the, clouds do, and the cloud does not burst under them. He says, who has established all the ends of the earth? Who, who took the earth and, and made it? Who, who lifted up the mountains? Job 38, 4, God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Isaiah 40, verse 12, God says, who has measured the or Isaiah writes of God, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span, calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Verse 15. Who is this God who gives wisdom to us? It is the great and powerful God, the creator of all things. He says, what is his name or his son's name? Does anybody know him? Maybe he has a second in command. Maybe he has, has a close relative or, or an assistant manager we could talk to. We need to talk to God. How can we do it? We don't know who he is. So the question for you and me, the brief applications from these, these verses already is, do we think like this about God? By God's grace, we have a, a unique and close relationship to him, and yet I think sometimes we forget how big God is. When Agur comes to writing about the wisdom of God, he says, I don't even understand it. He is too big. He is too great for us to understand. So then the question is, that it, it, it asks the question, well, how can we know? If we don't know who he is, if we don't know how big he is, how can we actually know him? And he answers in verse 5. The answer is the revelation of God. Verse 5, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. He's probably quoting Psalm 18, verse 30. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. The idea of every word of God being tested, it has the idea, maybe your, your Bible says something like flawless, or something like that. It's the word used when they would smelt silver, and as it heated, all the dross and impurity would rise to the top, they would scrape all that off, and then they would heat it again. And so over time, the silver or gold or whatever precious metal would be pure. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Eger uh, says, every word of God is perfectly pure. We are not talking about something that's pretty good and there's some inaccuracies. We're not talking about something that's really helpful, but there's some errors in there somewhere. It is perfect. It's flawless. It is pure. The New International Dictionary says, Like gold or another precious metal that's been thoroughly tried by fire, Yahweh's word is of proved authenticity and it is precious. Now he goes on in verse 5 and said, He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. He's a shield to those who, who seek shelter, who, who seek protection in him. And at first glance, we say those two things don't seem to go together. We're talking about the word of God and how good it is, how flawless it is. And then he, God protects the people who, who, who seek refuge in him. Well, why do those go together? Well, here's the point. 
why do you trust in God? Why do you trust God to care for you and to protect you in your life? Because you believe the words of this book. You see, because this is perfect and tested and pure, you actually can trust the one who wrote it. And by the way, we're not trying to put your, your trust in random words on a page. We're trying to put your trust in the one who spoke these words, right? And some of us have lived long enough to prove to ourselves that we didn't live our <laughs> All of us have lived that long. We just can't decide yet, right? Why can we take trust in him? Why can we trust in him? It's because his word is perfect. Dr. Eric Lane says, To those who have stared their own ignorance in the face, God's self-revelation is salvation itself, a shield and refuge, for they are not looking for information and answers, but they are looking for God himself. Verse 6, Agar goes on, Do not add to his words, or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. He says, just because God has the right to write perfect, flawless words does not mean you do. You do not get to add your own words to this, to what I am writing here, to what I am sharing with you, the wisdom of God. Because if you add to God's words, he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. We see that in other texts. Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you. Ecclesiastes 3.14 Solomon writes, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and nothing to take away from it. Revelation 22.18 ends the scripture by saying, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues. God is not interested in you adding your wisdom to his. If you do, it says he will reprove you, he will rebuke and convict you, and you will be condemned as a liar. Matthew Henry says, this forbids, this idea of adding words to the scripture, this forbids the advancing of anything, not only in contradiction to the word of God, but in competition with it. You say, oh, no, 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 the word of God is good, but also, hey, here's something else. No, 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 no. Matthew Henry says, though it be under the plausible pretense of explaining it, oh, I'm just trying to help you understand the Bible. Yet, if it pretend to be of equal authority with it, it is adding to his words, which is not only a reproach to them, but opens a door to all manner of errors and corruptions. You understand? If men, mortal men, get to decide what is the truth of God and wisdom, they are wrong. We believe this book not because men wrote it, but because God wrote it. We're thankful for that. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 says, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. We don't need more than this book. We don't need anything else. It is perfectly sufficient, this revelation that God has given us. So the question for you and me is, do you believe that? Do you trust that the word of God is the only truth that you need to live a life that honors God? It is. And Agur says, do not add or you will be convicted and condemned. Next, Agur comments on the protection of God. He, he turns in prayer and he starts speaking to God. Verse 7, two things I asked of you, do not refuse me before I die. Two things I, I ask of you, God, please don't hold back from me. Don't, don't withhold from me. Before I come to the last day. Hold tight. There we go. 
He goes on in verse 8, keep deception and lies far from me. That's his first request. Second request, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. So his first request has to do with God's protection of him, and specifically spiritual protection. He says, keep deception and lies far from me. Now, deception is actually the word used in Exodus when the commandment came not to take the Lord's name in vain. This idea is actually uh, the kind of speaking where you speak, you speak an oath, you, you misuse God's name and God's authority by what you are saying. And then he says lies, and that's what we're thinking of when we think of deception and lies. That is a false witness and, and uttering falsehoods in normal conversation. Both are culpable before God, Lane says. So he prays, and, and I almost wonder if he's praying specifically in relation to him sharing these proverbs with these men. God, as I share these, please do not let me say something wrong. Don't let me share deception or falsehoods. Or he could say, he could be meaning that he, God should protect him from others who would deceive and lie to him. Either way, the same is true. God is the one who protects us from temptation and sin from falsehood. Then he prays his second request, which is related to provision. And so he says, God, give me neither poverty nor riches, Feed me with the food that is my portion. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with my, uh, literally my allotment, my statute, my, my portion that you would give us. We see that modeled in the Lord's Prayer, right? In Matthew 6.11, give us this day our daily bread. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.8, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. I want to be clear that I don't think it is wrong for us to pray for God to bless us and to bless us in abundance. I think that we see that in Scripture. But I also think that it shows something about our hearts when we say, God, give me whatever you think I need. That's a very different prayer, isn't it? That's a very different humility coming to God and saying, God, I don't want anything you don't want for me. I want exactly what you have described, exactly what you have allotted for me. And whatever it is, be it food and covering, we will be content. He goes on. Why? Why would he say this? Why would he pray such a very interesting, specific prayer? Because, verse 9, that I not be full, that I not be satisfied, and deny you, and say, who is the Lord? Exodus 5, 2. These are the words of Pharaoh, the ones who hated God's people. And he said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? Agur says, do not let me, God, because of my circumstances, come to a place where I forget who you are when I am satisfied. He knows the scripture because this is exactly what God warned the people of in Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 to 14. God says, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes with which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied, when you are full and you've built good houses and lived in them and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, well, who's giving them all this good stuff? Well, it's God, of course. God is blessing them with it. But if I give you all of that, verse 14, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt. 
He says, I want to be careful that I don't give you so much blessing, even though I love to and I can, because I want your heart to be in the right place. And so Agur takes that understanding and he prays to God, God, do not let me be so satisfied and so full that I forget who you are. And then verse 9, he says, also, do not give me such poverty that I would be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. He doesn't want to steal and he doesn't want to profane the name of God. Specifically, he's referring to the eighth and the third commandments, respectively. Exodus 20:15, you shall not steal. Exodus 27, you shall not take the name of, of the Lord your God in vain. Proverbs 6, verse 30 and 31 talks about stealing, talks about the thief. And he says, men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's hungry. There's part of us that understands if someone steals just food so that they don't go, uh, so they don't starve to death, part of us gets that. And yet, Proverbs goes on, that doesn't mean that it's okay. It doesn't mean that it's right. Verse 31, when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. Ephesians 4.28, he who steals must steal no longer. And this is interesting. What's the opposite of stealing if we were to put off that sin and put on righteousness in its place? What's that? Putting back. And so that you can do what? Give to others, right? Verse 28, labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Agar prays, God, I do not want to be so poor that I am tempted to steal and to profane your name. You know what's interesting? Notice that in these two prayers, uh, Agar is not so much interested in how his circumstances are going to affect him. He's interested in how his circumstances potentially could affect God, right? He doesn't want to do these things. Why? So that he doesn't profane the name of his God. He doesn't care about being poor. He just doesn't want to dishonor God in it. So the question for you and for me is, is do we ask God to protect us from temptation and sin and also to provide exactly what we need so that we can glorify God the best? Is that how we pray and how we think of God's provision? And then when he does give that, are we thankful and content with what we have? Verse 10 goes on, and Agur talks about the judgment of God. How, how can we learn humility? One way is by considering the judgment of God. He says, do not slander a slave to his master, or he will curse you and you will be found guilty. Now, some have taken this verse as kind of a, an aside, maybe in your Bible it's set out by itself, and it's just another one of these Proverbs. But I agree, I, I stole a lot of things from this lesson from Corbett Dixon, who taught the other class last year because his lesson was awesome. But one of the things he mentioned, and I think he's right, is that verse 6 goes with verse 5, doesn't it? Talking about the word of God. Well, verse 10 is structured exactly like verse 6, and therefore it must also be speaking of the preceding verses, so 7 through 9. So what is he saying in verse 10? I think what he's saying is this. Agur has committed that he will be a slave to God. He will be a servant to God, no matter what that means. If it's good, bad, ugly. If it's easy, if it's hard, if he has rich riches, or if he has poverty, he will be a slave of God. And so... He says, for you out there who don't like my decision, who don't like what I'm doing with my life, don't slander me. <laughs> don't look at me and say, this guy is an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. He said, because if you do, the, my master, he will curse you and you will be found guilty. You will be condemned. You see, he's speaking of the reality that God doesn't leave his people alone. 
God cares for his people. He takes care of them. In the end, he will avenge them for the people who persecuted his people as well. And so Agur warns those who around who might be listening, do not slander a slave to my master, to the Lord, because he will curse you and you will be found guilty if you're not careful. And so we come to the second half, which is more of what we think of of these Proverbs. And, and Agur is going to transition and he's going to teach us a lesson about considering our lives. So one, we learned how we could learn humility by considering how God relates to us. But secondly, how do we learn humility by considering how God orders our lives? Now, what's interesting, and you might have seen it already, but uh, Agur is not a bullet point outline guy, is he? he? He's a daisy chain guy, right? Everything he says reminds him of something else he wants to say and reminds him of something else he wants to say, and it goes on and on. It's a little bit like your great aunt Sally that just always remembers the next thing. And then, and by the way, if, you're, if you don't have a relative that has conversations like that, you might be the one, just saying, okay? <laughs> but every time, and so each section, <laughs> every, uh, every section of this, uh, Agur is going to in some way remind himself of something else, and he's going to transition and speak about the next thing, okay? So the first section, the first thing that we talk about in our lives that, that God has ordered, and there are, there, these things are true, and yet we can learn humility from them. So number one is the people in our lives, Okay? Look at verse 11 to 14. There is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. Verse 12, there is a kind. Verse 13, there is a kind. Verse 14, there is a kind of man. Now, the first section, verse 11, we see the kind of people. Uh-oh, supposed to be there, sorry. The kind of people are the disrespectful. Verse 11, the disrespectful. There's a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. There is a kind of man. That word literally is generation. There, there is a whole group of people like this. Well, what is it? Well, they are disrespectful. They, they curse their father and do not bless their mother. In the Old Testament, Exodus 21, 17, said, He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Proverbs 20, 20 says, He who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in times of darkness. God is not okay with these kinds of people who curse their father and do not bless their mother. They are, they're disrespectful. They're ungrateful to their parents. Verse 12 says there's another kind of people, and they are the self-righteous. Verse 12, there's a kind who's pure in his own eyes and yet is not washed from his filthiness. He's pure. He is ceremonially clean, and yet he's not washed from his filthiness. Now, uh, taken uh, the nicest way we can say this is the one who says that they're ceremonially clean according to the law, but they're not actually ceremonially clean. But there's also a way to take this. Often when this word filthiness is used, it's referring to excrement or vomit or other bodily fluids. So the question is, if someone walked in covered in that and said, I am perfectly clean, let's start the party, we would say, get out. There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes. He thinks he's okay, but he's not washed from his own filthiness. Titus 1, 15 to 16 speaks of these false teachers. And it says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their mind and their conscience are defiled. Proverbs 16, 2, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. You see, the idea might not be on the outside, but in his heart. 
This is like the, the Pharisees in Luke 11, verses 39 to 42. The Lord said to him, the Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. He says, it doesn't matter what you think you look like on the outside. I, I'm pure, I'm clean, but you're not. You are full of all of this filthiness. 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. These people are just simply self-righteous hypocrites. There's a kind of person, verse 13, We'll call these the arrogant. There's a kind, oh, how lofty are his eyes, and his eyelids are raised in arrogance. He has, in his own eyes, he is exalted. He is lifted up. He is on a high place. And his eyelids are raised up in arrogance. Does God approve of these people? No, Proverbs 6, verse 17 says, haughty eyes are one of the things that the Lord hates. These people are simply arrogant and proud. Verse 4, or verse 14, excuse me, number 4, fourth kind of person, is the oppressive person. There's a kind of man, a kind of person whose teeth are like swords and his jaw teeth like knives. His teeth are, are like swords. His jaw teeth either could be knives or it could even be translated fangs. This person's like an animal with fangs for teeth. Why? So that they can devour and consume the afflicted from the earth, those people that are, that are poor and needy. Psalm 14.4 says, All the workers of wickedness who eat up my people. God says, People that do this are simply wicked and evil people. In Amos chapter 4, verse 1, God condemns the people because they are oppressing the poor and who crush the needy. The ones who, who look at those who are, are less fortunate than themselves and put them down and seek to, to gain advantage off of them, to consume what they have for their own good, God says these people are wicked. They're oppressive. So the question is, if we look at these four verses, these four kinds of people, how do we see, how do we learn humility from them? Well, I think this is the lesson here. The lesson is that people express their sinful pride in a variety of ways. You see, all of these ultimately are expressions of pride in our hearts that we are better than we are. One, to, to be ungrateful for our parents and those who have given us, we say, we don't need them, we're fine. Number two, sorry, am I doing something wrong? I don't have, I don't have all those up there. We'll get them in a second. Number two, the... the Verse 12, those who are, are self-righteous and hypocritical, they, they're proud and thinking that they're okay when actually they're not before God. Verse 13, some people wear their arrogance on their face. Some people, you can just look at them and look at their face and their eyes and the way that they look around, the way that they look at themselves and say they are a proud, arrogant person. And some people, like verse 14, are those who are oppressive, who care to take from others what they want. So the question is, if you are one of these kinds of people, recognize that you are in sin because you are proud and arrogant in your own heart, but also if you are hanging out with these kinds of people, don't. You need new friends. You need new influences in your life than those people who are proud in their lives. The next section, verse 15 to 17, Eger talks about the certainties of life. The certainties of life. And so verse 15 he says, the leech has two daughters, give, give, there are three things that will not be satisfied, four that will not say enough. He says, the leech, 
the one who consumes blood, right? It says, the leech has two daughters. Here are my two daughters. I would like you to meet give and give. What's the idea? Well, leeches don't give back, do they? They don't take something and then give you something better in return. They gave it back to you with interest. No, leeches just take. So what are the things in, in our lives that just take, that just consume, things that are not satisfied, or as the end of verse 15 says, that will not say enough? Well, verse 16 says there are four things like that. Sheol, the barren womb, earth that's not satisfied with water, and fire that never says enough. Sheol is the, the place of the grave, the, the place of the dead, the grave. The, uh, Proverbs 27, 20, Sheol is never satisfied. Habakkuk 2, 5, death is never satisfied. What is something that can never have enough, that only consumes and never gives back? Well, it's the grave. Number two, he says the barren womb, the, literally the oppressed womb. We remember the, the desire for children can just be overwhelming for the one who doesn't have them. In Genesis 30, verse 1, Rachel, when she saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous, and she said to Jacob, give me children or I die. The desire for children can come overwhelming and unsatisfied. Verse 16, earth that's never satisfied with water. You think of, of a desert, and you can pour as much water as you want into the sand, and it just drinks it up, and it still wants more. Verse 16, fire that never says enough. A raging wildfire that consumes everything and simply keeps moving from place to place wherever there is fuel for the fire. And then he goes directly from there to verse 17. And this is one of the interesting transitions. Because in verse 17 he says, The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. You say, well, wait a second. Maybe he just wrote it in the wrong place. He meant to write that back up under verse 11 where he talked about the one who curses his father and his mother. The answer is no. He meant to put it here. The answer is why. Because he uses those people as an example, but look at the second half of the verse. The ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. This is the kind of language that God uses when he is talking about his divine judgment on a people. And so, in Deuteronomy 28, verse 26, when he tells them, if you come into the land and you do not obey what I say, your carcasses will be food to all the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. He uses this language again in Revelation when he talks about the final judgment of all the people, the battle of Armageddon. So, what is he saying in verse 17? He says, just as sure as Sheol, that is death, is for every single person, so is also judgment. You see, death isn't just the passing on to something better, something different. Oh, it's just another life to be had. We're not reincarnated. Death brings judgment. And either you will be judged and given into the kingdom of God because you have repented and believed through Jesus Christ, or you will die and you will be brought to final judgment and cursed for eternity. He says, the things that are insatiable, the things that are certainties in our life, the grave. It's always there. It will always continue taking and never give back. And you know what the other thing is that's just as sure as death is that when you get to death, there will be judgment. So be careful. Be careful when you come to the end that you are right before God. And the question is, well, well okay, when, when's the end? I don't know when the end is for you. It could be right now. 
Repent and believe and trust in this great kind God so that you do not come into judgment. So the lesson for this one, pondering the certainty of death and judgment, that will humble you. (laughs) Pondering the, the certainty of death and of judgment will humble us. Death and judgment are coming for all of us. The question is, are we ready? Next, in verses 18 to 20, we talk about the mysteries of life. Eger says, There are three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. They're too, too wonderful, too marvelous, too extraordinary. I can't even get my mind around them. Uh, things I don't even understand. I, I don't know. What are they? Well, they are the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea, the way of a man with a maid. Eagle in the sky, a serpent on a rock, a ship literally in the heart of the sea, and then uh, very interesting words at the end of verse 19, the way of a, it should be a young man with a young woman. Okay, very specific words there. So the question is, what do these four things have in common? And if you read 10 commentaries, you'll get approximately 11 interpretations of what this could mean. I think there are some things that, it, of course, they all do, do connect with, but I don't know that that's the point. Personally, I think the point comes in the way. <laughs> the way. Because that word has the idea of a road, of a path. The way they are going. So the question is, when an eagle is up in the sky, how does he know where the road is? He doesn't. <laughs> what, what about a serpent on a rock? Is there a clear path for him to follow? Well, no, there's not. Well, what about a ship in the heart of the sea? How do you know where the, where the path is? Are there little road signs out in the middle of the ocean? Of course not. What about with young love, romance, and affection between young people? Is there a textbook, playbook for that? The answer is not really, is there? One of the beauties of, of love is that it is very unique in between two people. And so, so the things that you might say or do with someone else may or may not uh, affect someone else, right? So we, we see that there are things even in our relationships that we just don't quite understand. We don't quite have a roadmap for, and yet uh, we're happy to live and experience them anyway. And then he comes to verse 20. And in a similar way, how he used the, that ending of verse 17 to talk about a contrast or, or something wrong, he does the same thing here in verse 20. So he says, the way of an eagle, the way of a serpent, the way of a ship, the way of a man courting a young woman, but also in the same way, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. You see, what's interesting about verse 19 is there's not a clear path, is there? There's not a clear road up in the sky or on a rock or in the middle of the sea or even with young love. But there is a clear path when it comes to adultery because God has said so that that is sin. And so she is taking life and she's looking at, oh, well, no, there's things about life we just don't understand. There's not always a right way to go about this or about that. So I'm going to do this and it's not wrong at all. Each one to each, uh, each one to his own, right? Uh, you follow your truth, you follow your path, and I will follow mine. 
Well, the problem with that is God has been clear that adultery is sinful and wrong. And so when she eats and wipes her mouth, she, she's eating a meal, and she says, all this adultery, oh, that, that's just as natural as, as going out to eat. It's not a big deal. It's normal. Proverbs 4.11, Solomon said, I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. And in 7.27, he said, but her house is the way to Sheol descending to the chambers of death. It's sin, it's wrong, it will bring judgment. There are some things in life that there's not always a right answer to. Uh, how does an eagle know which way to fly? We don't know. There are some things that are very clear and plain that God has told us and we need to listen. So the lesson for this one, I would say this. Humility is willing to accept life's mysteries, but pride ignores the plain truth. Humility is willing to accept life's mysteries, but pride ignores the plain truth. You see, we think that it's humble sometimes to say, oh, you know, not really sure. You can just do whatever you like. That's not humble at all. That's pride because you think you know better than God does. You guys remember that passage, Deuteronomy 29, 29? The secret things belong to who? belong to the Lord our God. There are some things that you and I are not meant to know, some things we're not meant to understand. The Lord has those. But we forget the rest of the verse. The things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever so that we may observe all the words of this law. If God has said it, you better know it and you better obey it. The adulterous woman is trying to ignore the plain truth of what God has said, but that's simply pride. The fourth set here we talk about in verses 21 to 23 we talk about the roles of life the roles of life verse 21 under three things the earth quakes and under four it cannot bear up under three things the earth trembles and shakes there's an earthquake but in verse 20 at the end of verse 21 it it seems like we're not talking about the earth itself we're actually talking about the people of the earth because under four it cannot endure or, or maybe suffer is a better word the people of the earth there are some things that they just can't handle well, what is it verse 22 under a slave when he becomes king and a fool when he's satisfied with food under a slave when he literally when he kings when he does kinging it's not good for the people a fool when he is satisfied, when he is full of food, the worthless, futile person, the same as the word foolish later on in this chapter, a fool, when he is given everything that he wants, is that good for people or bad? It's bad. Proverbs 19, verse 10, luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a slave to rule over princes. Proverbs 30, verse 23 he goes on and says, under an unloved woman when she gets a husband and a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. Now, uh, this is not, as we read, oh, uh, this lady, she just wants to be loved. No one loves her, and now she gets a husband. That's a good thing. But the idea is not necessarily an unloved woman because she just wasn't picked. This is a hated woman. Why? Because of her character. She's, she's mean and angry. She's rude. And a woman like that, when she gets a husband, isn't going to suddenly change into this humble servant of a cheerful young wife. 
He says, a maidservant, when she supplants her mistress, literally has the idea of dispossessing. She takes over. The idea is here that perhaps by trickery, perhaps by, by adultery with the master, she takes the place of the mistress, mistress and the mistress is put out. Is that a good thing? Is that a good way to rise into power, into a good relationship? And the answer is, of course not. Proverbs 29, 2, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when a wicked man rules, people groan. You see, we all like the rags to riches story of, oh, this, this little guy, he, he comes and takes on, takes on the establishment. But the reality is, in real life, that might work in the movies, but in real life, people that take positions that they are not fit for, it is not a good thing. In fact, it leads to harm and chaos. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, Harmony in society is encouraged when people maintain their proper roles and do not assume positions they are incapable of handling. Does that mean you can't work your way up in your company and learn and grow? Of course not. It does mean you can do that and you can do that well. But it means that taking, you know, the 16-year-old kid that's flipping burgers and saying, hey, by the way, you're the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company. Uh, make sure you do it right. Is that going to go well for all these employees that are looking up to him? The answer is no. It's not. God has designed roles in our lives, and therefore we should humbly fit those well. So the lesson for, for this section, proudly taking a position that you are not fit for only leads to dysfunction and further harm. Proudly taking a position you're not fit for only leads to dysfunction and harm. So by the way, just a, a side application, this means this is true for us. You should not be willing to take a role that you are not actually capable of doing well, but also you shouldn't want that for other people. It's easy to look out in the world and say, man, I just wish that this guy was in charge or this guy was in charge. And it might be true that that would be a good thing, but it's also really easy for us to just say things that don't make a lot of sense and people kind of get on board with it. Be careful. The fifth section he's going to talk about how God orders our lives relates to the skills of life. Verse 24 to 28. Notice verse 24, he says, Four things are small on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. Small on the earth. They are little things, literally, but they are exceedingly wise. This is very interesting. He says, they are wise. It's the same word we've used throughout Proverbs for wisdom and a wise man, but he uses it twice. They are wisely wise. They are exceedingly wise. But it's also, uh, the, the way that it, the construction of it is, is it's a passive. <laughs> How are they wisely wise? Not because they are, but because they were made that way. What is that? God made these little things very, very wise. And so we have, have four lessons here. One, a lesson in preparation, a lesson in protection, a lesson in organization, and a lesson in situation. So first, verse 25, the ants are not a strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. They're not a strong people, they're not a mighty nation, but they make ready their food. You remember Proverbs 6, 6 to 8, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways, and be wise. She prepares her food in the summer. Verse 26 talks about the Shephanim. Now, we don't use that word anymore, but Shephanim are, are rock hyraxes, is the word for them, or rock badgers. They're these little, little furry guys, and they're about somewhere between the size of a field mouse and a chipmunk. Okay, Little, little guy, rock badger. 
and says, They are not a strong people, and yet they set in place their houses in the cliffs, in the rocks. Psalm 104.18 said, The cliffs are a refuge for the Shephanim. Third, we have a lesson in organization. That's in verse 27. The locusts have no king, yet they all go out in ranks. They have no king, no leader, and yet they go out in ranks. That is, this is a funny word. They, they cut themselves into groups. They have divisions that they go out in. In Joel chapter 2, verses 7 to 8, it's a prophecy of coming judgment, and it describes a horrific attack of locusts. But it says this about the locusts when they come. It says, they run like mighty men, they climb the wall like soldiers, they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other, they march everyone in his path, and when they burst through the defenses, they do not break their ranks. These locusts, these insects, have this massive and and coordinated attack by this organization, and yet they have no king, no leader. Verse 28 says, the lizard... You may grasp with the hands, yet it is in king's palaces. You might catch it. You might be able to capture it or seize it with your hand, and yet you'll find it in the king's palace. I know that I don't have a palace or anything like that, but I also find tiny little lizards in my house. Even though I can catch them and send them outside, guess where they are next time? They are in my palace again, okay? So the question is, with these four things, what is the lesson that we're trying to learn here? Well, notice how the ants are so small, and yet they are prepared. The rock badgers are small. They can't protect themselves, and yet they protect themselves by using the rocks and cliffs, the resources around them. The locusts have no king or leader telling them where to be, and yet they are naturally organized. And the lizards... Just because it's small and you could catch it doesn't mean that it doesn't have access to wherever it wants. Interestingly, you'll notice that the lesson here is that practical wisdom is often learned from the most humble people, if you will. Practical wisdom is often learned from the most humble people. You see, it would be easy to say, I want to know how, how to be, be protecting myself. I'm going to go talk to a lion. He says, well, talk to a rock badger. He's learned how to protect himself when he can't fight for himself. I want to learn how to be organized. Oh, go talk to something strong, an eagle or something. I'll talk to the locusts. They don't even have a king, and yet they're organized. It's interesting that, one, we can learn things actually from the smallest of creation— But I think there's an implication here that we also learn things from humble people. I can't tell you how many news articles I've scrolled past uh, on the the apps on my phone that say, oh, what time do the billionaires wake up? And and how can you manage your your portfolio like the CEOs? Well, it might be helpful to listen to people who are rich and powerful. But you know who you really should listen to? You should look around in your life and find the people that are just normal, faithful, humble people. And ask them, what advice do they have? How do they live? How do they care for their spouse? How do they, they love their kids and their grandkids? How do they do their job? How, when do they make time to study the Bible and to pray and to serve in the church? You don't need to go talk to Elon Musk for that. You need to talk to the people in the church. The humble people, the normal everyday people, they are the ones that can teach us real practical wisdom. The last section we have here, 29 to 33, refers to the leadership in our lives. 
the leadership in our lives. Proverbs 30, verse 29, there are three things which are stately in their march, that is, they do well, they look good when they walk, they do well in their steps, in their walking. Verse 30 tells us that one is the lion, mighty among beasts, does not retreat before any. Verse 31 tells us a strutting rooster, the male goat also, and a king when his army is with him. Now, you might look at this and say, well, I, I know the lesson there. <laughs> the idea is it's easy to talk big when you have your army behind you, right? Y'all remember that schoolyard taunt of, oh, says you and what army, right? Sure, the king's got an army with him. Sure, he's in control. Sure, he looks good. Sure, he's confident. But it's interesting. I don't think that's the point here. You see, this is a good thing, not a bad, proud confidence. Why does the lion walk and not retreat before any? Because he has this innate power. He is mighty. He is mighty for war, it says. The strutting rooster, it literally refers to the loins or the hips of the rooster. Why does he strut and look good in the barnyard? Why is he the king of the coop? Well, because he's made that way. He's walking how he's supposed to walk. The male goat, the one at the head of his herd, and, and he'll fight anyone who attacks his herd. And then the king when his army is with him. You see, this is the right thing. And what it says here is it doesn't mean the king, when his army is with him, hey, I'm going to use these to fight against you. It's the idea is that the army is, is with him. He, ha he has a vision. He has a mission of what he's trying to accomplish, and people are following him. See, uh, I think it was H.P. Charles who said, a leader without any followers is just a fellow going for a walk, right? Like, you have to have people following you if you're going to be a good leader. And this guy is, because when he goes somewhere, his army goes with him. They will go to the ends of the earth for this guy because they believe in him. The other reason why I think this is important to understand is that this guy is actually leading these people well and with humility. And the question is, how on earth would I know that? Because the next verse says, if, rather, on the other hand, if you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you've plotted evil, put your hand on your mouth. This is the contrast to this good, humble leadership of the king leading his army into battle. He is the one at the head. He is leading by example, but he is leading with humility. And he didn't exalt himself and say, hey, I'm the king. Everybody listen to me. Why is he the king? Because the people want to follow him. And so we see in verse 32, the opposite is this young man who is foolish. He exalts himself and says, yeah, but I want to be king too. And he's plotting evil so that he can take over. Maybe he's, he's thinking of assassinating the king or taking over in some other way. And, and Agur says, put your hand on your mouth. Stop it. Shut up. Don't think that way. You can't. Rather... You need to be humble in leading like this king is. You know what's going to happen if you keep letting these evil thoughts just con, uh, control your heart and, and, and stir up in your heart? Oh, verse 33, he has three, three statements that all match perfectly. The churning of milk produces butter. Churning the nose produces blood. Churning of anger produces strife. What happens when you press and twist into milk? becomes butter. What happens when you uh, press or twist the nose? Produces blood. What happens if you twist and press the anger in your heart? It breeds conflict and tension and strife. Don't think that way. 
Be a humble, gracious leader looking to lead your people by example, not the young man who foolishly thinks he can exalt himself and because he's angry enough, people might do what he wants. The churning of anger produces strife. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife. And Proverbs 29, 22, an angry man stirs up strife and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. So what's the lesson for this section? Good leadership is marked by a humble example. The king, when his army wants to follow him. Not proud confidence. Not an elevated view of yourself. So when we're looking for leadership, we want to look for that kind of people. A humble person who leads by example. And we want to be that kind of leader. A lot of things to learn from this chapter. A lot of things that are kind of obvious. A lot of things that aren't obvious at all. But if we were, were Sherlock Holmes, we would say, might say that there is one scarlet thread through the chapter that we didn't talk about yet. Go back to verse 4. Remember when Agar starts out that he's talking about how great and powerful God is and how uh, he can't even understand him. He's too big. But what's interesting is the way that Agar uses words throughout this chapter paint a picture if we put them all together. Verse 4, he says, Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? Well, John 3.13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Luke 8.25 Who's gathered the wind in his fists? Agur says, well, the disciples say, who is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Who has, has wrapped the waters in his garment and established the ends of the earth? Well, Colossians 1.16 says, for by Christ all things were created, both in heavens and on earth. What is his name, or what is his son's name? Matthew 1.21 says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verses 5 and 6 talk about the word of God being perfect and pure. Jesus Christ is the pure and perfect word of God. He's not only the one who gives us our portion, the scripture says that he is our portion and our life. Verse 10 talks about the master who will avenge his slave. Jesus is the master to those who repent and trust in him, and he will avenge them in the last day. He is more wonderful than the eagle in the sky, and when his coming comes, it will be from one end of the sky to the other, and no one will miss it. He is not a slave foolishly made king. He actually is a king made slave, Philippians 2. He is actually the very embodiment of wisdom, and he carefully created all of these little things that show wisdom in everyday life. You want to talk about a humble leader that comes and leads with his army behind him? Just wait, Revelation 19 says, until he comes with the armies of heaven riding behind him. You see, the kind of person that lives up to Agur's standard isn't you. It's Jesus. He is the one who perfectly satisfies all these things. Talk about death being unsatisfied, insatiable. Guess what? He satisfied death and he conquered it forever. And yet, with all of that, he is not a proud, arrogant young man. 
Rather, Matthew eleven twenty nine says that he is gentle and humble in heart. So do we want to learn how to be humble? We can take these words of Agur, we can apply them to our lives. We need to be careful to observe the things around us, how God relates to us and how God relates to the world and orders it for us. But make sure that when we're observing, <laughs> we're not missing the point. We don't want to observe just the things. We want to observe him looking to Jesus, the one who is gentle and humble in heart. And we will find rest for our souls. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth there. I do pray that as we go away from here that we would be challenged to, to pursue humility. God, you are a great God. There is none like you, and therefore we are humbled before you. And yet we also see how you have ordered our lives and the things around us, and we pray that we would learn even from them how kind and good you are, how we can humble ourselves and serve you well. And thank you for the time this morning. and pray all this in your name. Amen.